Uh, do you wish you were more confident? I think what we normally mean by that is self-confidence. Uh, perhaps you wish you had the self-confidence to travel overseas by yourself, uh, or maybe to try hang gliding, or to ask that girl out to dinner, or to have that difficult conversation with someone, or to give a speech to a room full of people. Self-confidence. Uh, Karen and I were driving along Cleveland Street in Redfern a couple of months ago during evening peak hour. It, it was really busy. There were cars and people rushing everywhere. And waiting there at the lights of Cleveland Street was a dad and his son walking home from the Prince Alfred Park swimming pool. Both were wearing only a pair of Speedos with a towel over their shoulder. And Karen and I thought how wonderful it would be to have that level of self-confidence. <laughs> but there is another type of confidence. Uh, confidence in others. In reliable, trustworthy people or things. You show confidence in a chair when you sit on it. Or in a pilot when you fly in a plane. You show confidence, you actually show confidence in the road rules and the other drivers every time you drive through a green light. Uh, confidence in doctors when you follow their advice. Uh, there's the confidence that we have as Christians. Uh, confidence is based on the reliability of God and his promises rather than, than on self-confidence. Uh, it's based on the work of Jesus, confidence that our sins are forgiven, confidence that we can approach God in prayer and be heard, confidence that our future is certain, so nothing, uh, there is nothing in this life to fear, even death. Now that's the sort of confidence that this passage is talking about. Paul says it twice, verse 6, Therefore we are always confident. And he says it again in verse 8, We are confident, I say. Now the word he uses for confident is it's rare. We'll just nerd for a little bit here, for uh, Bible nerds. It's only used six times in the New Testament. Five of them are in this letter, 2 Corinthians. Now that suggests to me there's actually a context for how this word was being used between Paul and his critics, perhaps, or the church. I think they were actually accusing him of a certain type of confidence. Uh, for example, in chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold or confident when I'm away from you, I beg you that when I come I may not have to be as bold, as confident as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of the world. Now I think reading between the lines there, Paul is being criticised by some of the false teachers for only being firm in his letters. Yeah, sure, you're confident when you're from a distance. You know, a bit like a, an online troll or a keyboard warrior these days. He was being accused that he, he actually lacked the, the, the self-confidence to be able to discipline them face to face. But his critics are actually confusing that sort of self-confidence or that pride with true confidence. So in chapter 5, I think Paul is explaining what true Christian confidence is and what it looks like, especially in the face of suffering and probable death in this life. 
It is not a self-confidence. It's a saviour confidence. A saviour confidence. Despite the difficulties of his life, despite the criticisms and the misunderstandings, despite being hard-pressed on every side, Paul shouldn't feel confident. But nevertheless, chapter 4 finished with this summary of why he doesn't give up. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. As tough as this life is, it's nothing compared to what he knows is ahead. Now, that's how he finishes chapter 4. Chapter 5, he continues this comparison between what life is like now and what life will be like then. And he says now it's a little bit like camping, which is okay for a while, but it's not as good as actually being home with all of its comforts. Now, that's eternity will be like that when this life is over. And we're with Jesus. And Paul can't wait. Do you see there in verse 1 of chapter 5? Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. The tent he's talking about is his body, uh, his earth, this earthly life, and he's groaning to go home. A tent, it's a temporary thing. It's okay for a while, but the, wind sh- the, the, the walls shake in the wind, it leaks if you touch the roof. It, uh, there are gaps and mosquitoes and you sleep on the floor. and It's okay for a week or two, but it's not permanent and it's not home. This life is a tent. We're in a body that's wasting away. We're living in a world that's sinful and fallen but it's only temporary. Our real home is in eternity where we will be clothed with a heavenly body, which is far better. Now, that's the way we should think. And perhaps we think that way theoretically, but often it doesn't look like that in practice. A lot of the time, we actually live the way the world lives. We live as if this life is all there is. We work hard to make sure that we are secure. We build up as much money and assets as we can. We make long-term financial plans. We renovate the house. We work on our fitness. We take medication to keep us healthy. We expand our business. We save the planet. We live through the success of our children. We travel the world. Now, none of that stuff is bad. But if we stop at the end of that, that's where the problem comes in, isn't it? People show it in all sorts of ways. They want to make life as good as they can. They want to make heaven on earth. And they don't think beyond that. And we get sucked right into it, the humanist dream. Fix all our problems here, make ourselves comfortable, and that's the limit of our thinking. But Paul says the true Christian experience is to be groaning for heaven. Many of us are like some of the people we saw camping at Lennox Head Beach Mission. Uh, 
They've got their site set up with all the comforts of home. They have this amazing shared undercover camping and eating area. There's the collapsible camping chairs, of course, but that's just the beginning. Some had a full-size sofa. There are extension cords everywhere with fans and fluorescent lights and hi-fi speakers and TVs and microwave ovens and coffee makers and a full-size fridge. This is all set up for two weeks of holidays at the beach. Now that's what many of us are tempted to do here on earth. We surround ourselves with so much comfort that we've forgotten that this is not home. And we can even build a religion out of it as well. We build a Christianity that says God wants to bless you now and make your life better now and free you from all your troubles now. And so you wonder if there's actually any any need for heaven at all. Paul is up against that sort of teaching in Corinth. People who focus on this life so much that they forget that it's just temporary. So so just jump your eye down to verse 12 of chapter 5. Uh, He talks about fake apostles who come with big promises for now. And he says, verse 12, We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is unseen. Here's Paul, this guy who's groaning for heaven. Here are the other guys, successful, super spiritual who are focusing on what is seen, building a religious empire here on earth. And Paul says, get it right, heaven is home. We're just camping at the moment. We're groaning, verse 4, longing to be home. Uh, Verse 4, he says, for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling." so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. Problem is, most people don't set their desires high enough. They are satisfied with too little. They don't set their vision far enough ahead. They're too short-sighted. Even those who do plan. They want a better quality earthly tent. They don't think about a heavenly dwelling. But it is hard, isn't it? Most of the time it's hard to be confident in that future uh, reality. I think we don't believe strongly enough that it's real. Heaven is quiet. Heaven is distant. We can't see it. Whereas this life is the one that seems real. It seems natural to work on this life. But look at what Paul says in verse 5. He gives us two reasons to keep our minds on heaven. Firstly, he says, verse 5, Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose, that is, to be clothed with a heavenly dwelling. We were designed for a heavenly home. It's earth which is not the end. Our body is less than we were made for. Reality is our heavenly body, our resurrected body. And if we forget that, we become like a caterpillar who's happy to stay a caterpillar and never actually wants to be a butterfly. He's happy crawling around in the dirt. 
Or we're like a tadpole who's happy staying a tadpole and never wants to be a frog. A puddle of water is all he can imagine. If you've ever had the nagging feeling that you don't fit into this life, that you were made for something more, that's actually natural. God's put that in you. You were designed for eternity. You were designed for a body that lasts forever. A body that doesn't experience sickness or pain or tears. You were designed for relationships that don't break down. For complete intimacy. You were designed for life without disappointment and mistrust. We actually long for those things because God has put them in us and they will be in eternity. That's what we were made for. This life is a tent. It's not our home. Second reason to keep our minds on heaven is there in verse 5. He's given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God gives us himself, his spirit, living in us as a guarantee of his ownership. Like a stamp or a tattoo or a, this belongs to, this is mine. He gives us his spirit as a glimpse of eternity right now, a taste of what complete fellowship will be like then. You see, it's God's spirit who longs for eternity. It's God's spirit who longs for an unbroken intimacy with us. God's spirit longs for purity and wholeness. God's spirit is shaping us to long for those same things. That word for down payment, it's a a financial word. Uh, So just imagine it. The image is that you bought that apartment on the Gold Coast. You paid the deposit. They send you the receipt and they throw in a free DVD to show you what you can look forward to. And that package is proof of what belongs to you and it's also a taste of what you can look forward to. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, just as an aside, these verses are one of the the few places that talk about what happens when a Christian dies, uh, between their death and uh, judgment day. Uh, Verse 3 and 4 talk about three stages, about being clothed in a tent, about being unclothed or naked, and then thirdly, being clothed with a heavenly dwelling. Now, most uh, Christian scholars say this naked stage is a description of what the Christian experiences after his death until Christ returns, until Judgment Day. He will be with Christ. Jesus said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. But he won't have his earthly body. He will be unclothed. That's somewhere else, rotting in the ground. But his spirit, his soul, will be with Christ. But he also won't have his resurrected body yet either. Uh, That will only come when Jesus returns on Judgment Day. Uh, Verses 8 and 9 talk about either being at home in the body or at home with the Lord. Uh, My reading is that to be home with the Lord uh, for the Christian who dies at the moment means you'll be unclothed. You don't have your resurrection body yet, but you also don't have your earthly body. But then on Judgment Day, you will receive your heavenly body. 
Just a couple of other passages that tend to uh, lean us in that direction. There's a passage in Revelation 6 that describes... Uh, John says, Under the altar I saw the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was told, was given a white robe and told to wait a little longer. So that's nakedness. Uh, Christians who are with the Lord, but at the moment they're, they're waiting for their resurrection bodies. Uh, listen to how that day is described in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. And Paul describes two sorts of Christians. There are those Christians who will be physically alive when Jesus returns, as well as those who are sleeping and waiting, uh, who've died previously, uh, depending on what state they're in. Those who sleep have been separated from their bodies, and those who are still alive uh, are in their earthly tents. So, verse 51, he says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed. So, so that's saying most Christians will be asleep, they'll be, have died, but some won't sleep yet. But all Christians will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. They will be clothed with a heavenly dwelling. And we will be changed. Now, in some way that I can't understand, our, our phys- if we're still alive when Jesus comes back, our, our earthly bodies will be clothed or swallowed up with a resurrection body. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. If you've got any more questions about that, come and see me at morning tea. We'd love to chat about it. Well, back to the big idea of the passage, tents and houses. Paul is saying, you were made for heaven, take your eyes off this tent. Now when you think like that, that'll affect your attitude. Uh, And so he comes to verse 6. Verse 6 he says, therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. The therefore, it's pointing back to verse 5, it's because we have God's spirit, uh, because uh, we, uh, we were made for something else, we can actually be confident about the future. Now once again, it's not a self-confidence, it's a spirit confidence. Our confidence is in God's promise. It's a confidence that in the face of groaning, in the face of injury or death, your future is sure. Confidence in the face of people who ridicule you because God has promised you. God has accepted you. And that confidence will actually affect how you live. If you are camping and you know that you are going home soon, you don't bother planting roses at your tent door. You don't carpet the floor or install an air conditioner, unless you're at Lennox Head, in which case you you might do some of those things. If you know you're going home soon, you get ready. Now, that's the same with Paul. He says in verse 6, therefore he's confident. Uh, He says, while we're here in this body, we're away from the Lord. Things are not what they should be. We're living by faith because we're confident. Uh, He lives trusting God. 
And so he works to bring about God's plans. Confidence produces a working to grow God's kingdom. Now that takes faith, doesn't it? Because life is tough at the moment. Life is more pain than pleasure, more questions than answers, more thorns than roses. We're not home yet. This is temporary, but one day that will change. We can be confident of that. God's spirit guarantees it. God's promises guarantee it. That's what it means to walk by faith rather than sight. And you might think, you're not really selling the Christian life very well, Dave. It's a, it's a long way from ideal, really, isn't it? Uh, Paul says that in verse 8. He says, I'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But that doesn't mean the Christian should just give up. Uh, we should focus on our heavenly future. Uh, but that doesn't mean we forget about this life. Uh, it doesn't mean we are so heavenly minded we're no earthly use. It's not what Paul's talking about. Do you notice what his confidence in the future does for the present? Look at verse 9. He says, we'd prefer to be at home with the Lord, so therefore we give up? No, he says, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Whether Paul is still alive when Jesus comes back or not, his heavenly home will be when he's with Jesus. And so that means Paul wants to please him now. He wants to be prepared to meet him. He wants to bring as many people with him as he can to meet with Jesus so that he can receive Jesus' commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what it means to get ready to go home. Confidence in that day gives you uh, the, the motivation to get ready now. Think about how he's described his life. Back in chapter 4, verse 8, he said he was hard-pressed on every side, perplexed. He goes on to talk about how it was all for the benefit of the Corinthian church, how he was being given over to death for their sake, and all of it was to please the Lord. I wonder whether Paul will get to Judgment Day and see all the fruit of his labour All the people are in heaven because of his suffering. And I wonder whether he'll say, I'm not sure it was worth it or not. That was a waste of time, wasn't it? I could have been off having fun. Of course he's not going to say that. He's going to say it was all worth it. Every hungry and sleepless night, every scar, every heartache, every danger, he will say, I would have done that ten times over. All of it is getting ready to go home, getting ready to go home. It's Paul preparing for what he was made for, working to please the one he's spending eternity with. Because don't forget, this life is just it's camping. It's temporary. Have you got that perspective? Are you making it your goal to please God while you're in this body? Because one day soon you will be home. How are you getting ready to go home? The decisions you're making about your family and your priority and your career and how you spend your time and your money. The people you want to invest your your time with and build relationships with. The causes you commit to. 
are all of those decisions helping you ready, uh, helping you get ready to go home? Or are they just about making this tent more and more comfortable? Make it your goal to please Jesus because you're confident that your home is eternity. Let's pray. And I'll pray and then continue uh, by praying for the need.